Hello and welcome to Just Emergencies. I'm Rebecca Richards and for this episode I sat down with Matthew Hunt to talk about the ethics of closing humanitarian projects. Matthew is an Associate Professor and the Director of Research in the School of Physical and Occupational Therapy at McGill University and he's also a researcher at the Centre for Interdisciplinary Research in Rehabilitation and an affiliate member of the McGill Biomedical Ethics Unit. And just before we get into our conversation with Matthew, um, I wanted to let you know that we won't be posting a new episode in January, but we'll be back to our regular posting schedule come February. This is Just Emergencies, the podcast where we show that global health emergencies are anything but just. In each episode, we'll explore an issue, question or event that makes us think about global health emergencies, humanitarian crises and how to best respond to them. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hi Matthew, thank you so much for sitting down and taking time um, to talk with me about the ethics of humanitarian project closure. It's my pleasure, thank you for the invitation. Of course. So I guess first things first is how did you become interested in this topic? Well, it's been over a decade that I've been conducting research around ethical questions related to humanitarian health response. So this is the organization of humanitarian action to respond to situations of disaster, war, or epidemic, usually by international humanitarian organizations, and examining the ethical dimensions of, of this domain of practice. Sometimes these are more clinical uh, ethical questions, uh, issues related to dilemmas of competency, for example. So a health professional who's been trained for a certain uh, scope of practice is now in a circumstance where because of the lack of other health professionals, the inability to refer to others, they're asking questions, is it appropriate, is it ethical to practice near the edges, the boundaries of their clinical uh, scope of practice? That would be a very near-term question. We've also looked at aspects related to the ethics of resource allocation and humanitarian settings, for example. And in this context, conducted many interviews with humanitarian workers, easily over, uh, well, maybe close to 200 uh, interviews with different uh, individuals differently situated within the sphere of humanitarian action. And in that work, there was a set of questions that we hadn't examined they came up in various contexts, sometimes in interviews and in other conversations, that people identified a broader issue that was ethically vexing, that they struggled with, that they had questions about. This idea of how do you close a humanitarian project? What happens at the end? What are your responsibilities towards communities with whom that you've been working? And uh, then what would an ethical uh, project closure look like? And it's really those sorts of stories, those sorts of experiences related to us in the context of this research that brought us onto this research question. So now I'm conducting a research project uh, with colleagues that is really asking the question, like, what does an ethical project closure look like? What would be some of the dimensions there? But also, what is ethically at stake in the context of humanitarian project closure? Right, and, and when you talk about the closure of humanitarian projects, what are you talking about there? What's involved in that process? Yeah, very good. I think it's important to make that distinction. Obviously, there are all sorts of project closures because there are all sorts of humanitarian projects. It's going to look very different. I mentioned the issues around 
disaster, war, and uh, epidemic, obviously closing a project in the context of a long-term armed conflict is going to be very different than after a sudden onset disaster or the outbreak of an epidemic. But broadly, what we hear about are different modes of project closure. Sometimes we have or particularly in the past, maybe people are more uh, careful of this because there's more attention to it, of like an abrupt project closure. So a cut and run approach, wrap things up and leave. Um, this was done maybe more in the past. Jennifer Rubinstein has referred to this as pulling the rug out uh, from underneath a community with whom the project has been developed and with whom the project has been um, implemented. On the other hand, what we hear, what we emphasize more are phasing down a project, so gradually decreasing a project in scope, phasing uh, over a project, so handing it over maybe gradually and then handing it over to some entity, uh, ideally the Ministry of Health in a health-related project, but maybe partner organizations, local non-governmental organizations, other agencies that can take over some of these services. One of the concerns is what's the legacy of the project? What are the implications in terms of the well-being of the community in terms of continued access to quality services? Uh, so we see these these various modes. The other thing to say is, you know, within under the umbrella of closure are, is also the transition from sort of a humanitarian relief approach to a humanitarian or to a rather to an international development approach. And the reality is that those boundaries are more porous than we sometimes describe. We describe it as like, you know, a, a sharp uh, division between the two. But I think it's quite clear that that is not the case, that there's much more interaction between relief and development. Uh, but it's part of this idea of closure. You might be wrapping up the re acute relief aspect, moving towards reconstruction um, and towards development. And so those transitions come under this umbrella. Right, and you, so you mentioned before that there's been a shift away from this sort of cut and run or pulling out the rug approach yes. um, to a handover or a phase out approach. Mm -hmm. um, can you just maybe give some circumstances of the cut and run approach, why that happened under what circumstances and why it has shifted over into this, this phase out and handover approach? Yeah. Happily. So I think what you were seeing is sort of you know, evolution within the humanitarian field, a greater appreciation or attention to the longer-term consequences of how relief is provided, and maybe towards increased professionalization uh, within the humanitarian sector as well. So there might still be instances in which there's this abrupt closure. And like I said, there are different contexts uh, as well. So there might be certain types of projects where you know, the the idea of a closure that's more abrupt and there's less follow-up afterwards or less attention to what comes afterwards might be less problematic. I'll give you the example of a vaccination campaign. Maybe once the vaccination uh, process is complete, it's easier to imagine that it's going to be, uh, you know, more, more cleanly divided and what happens afterwards. Then there are other instances where you might have to think a great deal about continuity. Are there the likelihood of a recurrent uh, drought or disaster, for example, in some settings might lead you to pay close attention to what's going to happen afterwards. 
or even this question uh, that I alluded to before of what's going to be left behind. Imagine you have a primary care program, you've been providing health services that are fairly uh, extensive, and then the worry is if the humanitarian relief project closes, what's going to be left behind in terms of health services for the community? So we'd be thinking very very much in terms of, well, what's going to be available? Is there going to be access to quality services and who will provide them? Uh, so that shift of attention, and partly it's about the temporal horizon of concern, the acute phase of the disaster or the humanitarian response, and then looking at what comes afterwards. So you mentioned about what is left behind after a project's leave. So is that one of the ethical tensions that you're talking about when you're talking about the ethics of closing humanitarian projects? Um, and what are the things that people are talking about when they're talking about the ethics of closing humanitarian projects? Very good. So uh, I think maybe it's worth saying at the outset that there are many instances where projects are closed and it proceeds in a relatively smooth fashion. You know, so to just to acknowledge the fact that there are project closures that unfold in a way that uh, aren't contentious and just don't pose these ethical challenges. Um, but there are many others that seem to do. So people have described closing projects as you know, amongst the most challenging aspects of humanitarian action. And partly it does point to some of the central ethical tensions. You asked about ethical tensions. I would say one of them is uh, about adjusting our ethical gaze, the concern for the community with whom we've been working, and then concern for other communities who may not be receiving assistance. So to make that a little bit more tangible, we could ask at one level, so if you're thinking as a humanitarian uh, practitioner working with a community, it might feel very uncomfortable to be closing up a project where you know that there continues to be precarity. Uh, people are in a precarious situation, that there's uncertainty about access to services. So you're working in the health domain. What's going to happen after the project closes? Is there going to be access? Will people still be able to have obstetrical care or uh, nutritional needs uh, addressed or primary care delivered, surgical capacity. So that, that might be a concern at, at one level. And then at this broader level, maybe if you're thinking as a policymaker, you might be asking the question, well, if we look across communities or across countries, are there other communities who have greater needs or in more precarious situations than the community with whom we've been working? Uh, from a humanitarian principle of impartiality, focusing on needs and directing our actions, our priorities based on needs, uh, should we not be shifting over to help that community instead? Um, you know, we might worry about what we owe to the communities with whom we've already been working, but you might ask the question, what do we owe to communities who are not receiving assistance? And they might be uh, you know, close by, they might be in another country, on another continent, if we have that wider point of view of humanitarian action as these international organizations. Uh, but there are other questions that get asked. There are questions about what harms might result from different modes of closing projects. Uh, that might be very clear when we talk about the abrupt project closure where we haven't planned for or paid attention to some of these issues. People describe harms of various types. So you could imagine that in a project 
the fact that the humanitarian organization is there has a huge uh, boost on the local economy. People describe because the humanitarians are there, there's produce in the market, um, in the marketplace, in the community. It creates jobs, for example. And so people might be concerned about those losses after the project closes. There might be harms, too, on an economic level, changing, for example, uh, people's access to accommodation or changing uh, the, the issues around sort of rental of, of properties. That's been described in different contexts. But we might have these sort of economic concerns. Obviously, there's the more direct services that might be removed. Um, the people who are working for the humanitarian organization might be worried about various types of, of harms. There might be uh, issues around security. So people have described that the most... The, the biggest issues from a security point of view are often at the beginning or the end of a humanitarian project. That's where the risks of, of insecurity are at their greatest. So you can start to see that there are these various aspects or, or concerns related to harms and trying to minimize those harms, ensuring that we are upholding principles of impartiality and yet acknowledging that maybe there are special duties, uh, concerns of solidarity, for example, that we uh, owe certain responsibilities to the people with whom we're already working. And then this concern for the legacy of the project, what's going to be there after the project finishes, and, and to what extent do we have a responsibility for that? Also recognizing the limits of humanitarian action. Uh, Rubenstein would say uh, that you know, humanitarian NGOs, non-governmental organizations, are always second-best actors. Um, you know, They're not the Ministry of Health, and they should not be replacing the Ministry of Health, and yet in these very difficult circumstances of a humanitarian crisis, maybe in some of these roles, and with the goal then of handing over, so this uh, you know, sort of ideal mode of humanitarian project closure, handing over to organization entities, governments that are in place and have legitimacy and credibility to be able to provide these uh, services, these activities going forward. And how, what kind of... So how can that handover be made smoothly? What are the sort of things to look out for there or the, the processes that can be taken to hand over from an NGO to a, to a government or a Ministry of Health? Yeah, well, very good. I don't think there are any easy answers to this question. And there are obviously some operational dimensions to, the, to that. Maybe I could focus on the ethical aspects of it. One of the things that in the work that we're doing now, so I mentioned that we were starting a project on this, we've been interviewing expatriate and national uh, humanitarian workers in this first phase of the project and trying to understand some of their experiences and perceptions about the ethics of closing projects. And through that work, we're starting to articulate actually some things about the process of closing. And so, so this emphasis on handover is one piece of as of a process. Like we could distinguish the ethics of why a project is closed, the ethics of how a decision is made to close a project. So maybe that should be the first one. How we make the decision, why the decision is made, and then how the decision is implemented. So we've decided to close a project. How do we ensure or how do we move towards a handover type scenario? Uh, obviously one of the things is clear planning from the outset. People have described that you're the start of planning for project closure should begin in the design phase before the project has uh, been implemented or as the project is being implemented. So this sort of careful planning, emphasis on relationships and building relationships uh, with these organizations. So uh, 
what role have they had in the, the design of the project, the implementation of the project. We would emphasize concerns such as transparency. Um, so transparency both of the reasons why the project is being closed, but also how the what are the steps in the timelines of project closure. That's going to be important for handover. Issues of inclusivity and participation in the in the process of project closure. So not just something that is being unilaterally um, decided, but to the extent that's possible, that there's involvement, and that that really pushes us towards thinking about both participation, or sorry, both part partnership, I should say. Uh, so partnering with um, these local entities, even within the project itself. And then maybe also attention to concerns of capacity building. Are there ways that the pro within the project itself, we are uh, creating the groundwork, doing the groundwork that makes it more feasible for handover to occur. So we, we'd be concerned from an ethical perspective about some of these procedural dimensions, right? So issues of transparency, inclusivity, participation, partnership, that these would be ethical uh, goals, ideals that we'd be aiming towards and seeking to achieve, you know, all within the context of recognition that these are situations of crisis. Um, and as the acuity of the crisis diminishes over the life cycle of the project, and we're moving towards closer, presumably we're moving towards a diminished crisis situation where we can anticipate closing the project, then we should be uh, ramping up maybe some of these other considerations of capacity building and, and, and par partnership, for example. So you mentioned that really how we're going to close projects should be kept in mind as we're designing projects. Yes. Um, but I would imagine that some humanitarian projects might need to be put in place very, very quickly Absolutely. because of unexpected circumstances. So under that kind of time pressure, is it quite difficult to keep, or are there guidelines that can help with designing a project in a way that already has closure in mind? Mm -hmm. Because to me, I would imagine that in an emergency situation, you just want to get this project up and running, running as quickly as possible. And maybe you know deal with the closure when we get to that point when we have a bit of calm return to the situation as such right uh, that certainly is the reality that there are a variety of circumstances where humanitarian projects are implemented quickly there's this sense of temporal urgency associated with particularly a sudden onset event or an exacerbation of conflict for example the outbreak of a epidemic that might be a catalyst, a trigger for a humanitarian response. And so it might make these things more difficult. But there are lots of things we can say about that. One is that humanitarian organizations have responded to other crises before. Well, the opportunity to learn from previous experience and apply it in this new situation to plan in advance. Uh, you mentioned, you know, are there things in place, guidelines and protocols, and that, that is so within organizations and across organizations. There have been efforts to try and articulate some of these considerations, what has worked elsewhere. Uh, obviously, the need to tailor that and contextualize it. I think what's really challenging in those circumstances are the relational dimensions of what I described. How does participation and partnership work in this situation of urgency? 
the pushback against a tendency to think, well, it's too urgent, we should just leave closure for later. Uh, it, it's been a consistent response from the people that we've been speaking with that that's insufficient. And actually, there are more opportunities for engagement than at first blush we might, we might think is, is so. So we could, we could think about these things. The other thing to say is that there are many of the crises that we could point to in, in past years that not only are they organizations rushing in after a crisis event, an acute crisis event, but often they're organizations who are already there in place who maybe were providing development type response and then they shift gears and they're focusing on a, on a crisis response or that have relationships that work there in the past. So especially for the larger organizations, it might not be something that's starting all of a sudden. There might be different ways of working and they might partner with local organizations. Imagine uh, the Red Cross movement with national Red Cross, Red Crescent societies. It's not something external to the country. It's working within uh, local institutions. And that there might be things like that in other circumstances where organizations have been there. So we can learn from past experience that have been from, from elsewhere. There might already be groundwork uh, in terms of relationships and connections and even projects. And, and then it, it seems to be the case that there's more possibility of developing these relationships towards effective handover than we might originally think. And just before we go, you've mentioned Jennifer Rubenstein a couple of times um, and her work. Is there anyone else that, if people were interested in learning more about this, um, where could they start looking? Who could they start reading? Yeah. What resources can they access? Well, some of the things that I found very interesting uh, are also, Lisa Fuller has written about justified commitments. She's looked at the types of responsibilities that humanitarian organizations have when they're making decisions of where to begin projects, but also has described some, uh, you know, some of the obligations for the, that humanitarian organizations have for communities with whom they've been working if they are going to close a project. So this articulation of a special obligation uh, based around this idea that humanitarian projects have both instrumental and intrinsic value that they might, you know, to the degree to which they engender um, things like hope or trust, which we can problematize, but she's pointing to the, the nature of with which there are these relational dimensions, this question of solidarity that might exist. And I found that helpful. Not directly related to humanitarian project closure, but an idea more related to the ethics of research and ancillary care benefits, but I think has application here is the idea of moral entanglement that Henry Richardson has developed um, in these other contexts, thinking about the sorts of responsibilities. So Rubenstein might point us to some of the responsibilities that flow from the somewhat governmental aspect of humanitarian action. Fuller might point to these obligations that exist because of the intrinsic and not just the instrumental value. And then Richardson talks about moral entanglement. I think that is... Uh, an image, a, you know, a concept that might capture some of these things that he would articulate that the responsibilities are higher, the more comprehensive the project has been, the longer it has been in duration. And then thirdly, the degree of reliance that the community or communities has on the project. So there's more moral entanglement, 
longer, more comprehensive, and more reliance, and therefore the obligations to address some of these concerns, the responsibility to address these concerns increase. Uh, maybe I'll say uh, one last thing in terms of like how we respond to this. One thing that we've been doing in our project has been to think about some ethical capacities then that humanitarian organizations can nurture and develop. Then um, this might seem, you know, a bit more difficult to pin down than the idea of articulating principles of impartiality or minimizing harms or sustainability or ethics that are more procedural ethics, transparency and otherwise. But ethical capacities, what would that look like? What would virtuous project closure look like? So that's what we've been trying to think about. And, and, and talking about three capacities. The first are notions of foresight, uh, thinking what, you know, anticipating what might be consequences. So this is around planning, but it's this um, active, um, like deliberate anticipation, maybe forecasting possible scenarios, anticipating potential harms and trying to adjust planning to, to address these. And the notion of, uh, you know, a, a foresight actually has a long history in humanitarian action, which I've learned about recently. But back to 1875, Gustave Meunier talked about prévoyance as one of the key approaches of the Red Cross movement when it was articulating values for the Red Cross movement and this idea of foresight. So th that would be the first one. How do we develop this in light of or in the context of project closure? The second uh, is the idea of uh, attentiveness. So attentiveness, this ethical capacity, drawing attention to the nature of relationships attentiveness to the different types of perspectives and points of view. And in, in this context, you can imagine thinking carefully about what does project closure mean for the staff that you've hired locally or for local communities? How are people seeing this situation? What is at stake from the perspectives of various uh, individuals? And being attention, attentive to this social fabric of action in, in this particular circumstance, to paraphrase Springer. And then thirdly is the idea of responsiveness, which is this need to be uh, able to adapt plans in light of the situation, to take this more generalized institutional knowledge that we have about project closure and then think about, well, how does it apply here? And how do we respond and alter our plans in light of circumstances, the particular context, the particular community, the relationships that are being developed and are evolving over the course of the project? That, so th this is, you know, an important line of thinking. And Lisa Eckenweiler has been really helpful at sparking some of these reflections. So how do we develop foresight? How do we develop attentiveness towards relationships, responsiveness towards shifting circumstances, adaptability? And these might help us as we anticipate. We, the humanitarian community, humanitarian organizations, trying to think carefully through the you know, navigates the ethical terrain of project closure. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for this fascinating look into what's at stake when we're talking about closing humanitarian projects. So thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. So that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Episode transcripts are available below the episode description. We also have show notes on our website where we not only list all the references mentioned in this episode, but also give you some further resources if you're interested in learning more about today's topic. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes, please email us at ghe at ed 
www.gangooglymitra.ac.uk. We're also on Twitter as at gangooglymitra and rev underscore richards. Be sure to check out and explore our website, Justice and Global Health Emergencies and Humanitarian Crises. For more great content, just go to www.ghe.law.ed.ac.uk forward slash. Thanks for listening and see you again on the first Monday of the month for the next episode. This podcast is edited and produced by Rebecca Richards and made with funding from the Wellcome Trust.